Dotnet Rocks, episode 1152, with guest Simon Crop, recorded Thursday, May 28th, 2015. very much and welcome back to dotnet rocks this is carl franklin and this is richard campbell and we're here for your amusement and pleasure and learning capabilities we shall dance for you yes we shall <laughs> with our minds <laughs> how are you buddy i'm i'm fine uh, the uh the summertime you know you never know when you're going to take your last family vacation <laughs> yeah right okay. so i think i actually did i took the family to italy a few years ago because now the girls are in their 20s and they're while they're still quote unquote living at home you know they're going to the local universities they're all doing their own vacations the older ones off in japan the younger ones driving across canada so uh yeah i got a feeling your family's going to be taking family vacations for quite a while they may be just taking a break yeah who knows i don't yeah. know they, you know the big thing is uh somehow we've imbibed adventure into our children so yeah. I, I don't know where it came from but they are adventurous that's good well things are well for me too but enough about us let's talk about the Better Know a Framework segment. Roll awesome. that music. All right, buddy, what do you got? Well, this is a pretty cool uh, thing that I found, OmniSharp. Do you know about OmniSharp? <sighs> the name rings a bell. OmniSharp.net. So this is cross-platform.net development. Uh, it's a family of open-source projects, each with one goal, to enable a great .NET experience in your editor of choice. Oh, Interesting. So it's a set of tooling, editor integrations, and libraries that together create an ecosystem that allows you to have great programming experiences, no matter what your editor or operating system choice may be. And so uh, from the website, we unapologetically love .NET. We love its languages and all of its libraries and frameworks. We also love Sublime, Atom, Emacs, Vim, and Brackets. We create Owen middleware on Ubuntu and deploy to Azure. We make ASP.NET services from our Macs and deploy to Linux. And we do all this while still using useful features like IntelliSense, add reference, format, document, and lots more. Nice. Doesn't that sound appealing? Yeah. Yeah. And I even see the Visual Studio Code logo down there, which is cool, because I was thinking, well, how does Code of Impact this? Obviously, they're thinking about it. Yeah. So, good stuff. Check it out. OmniSharp.net. Know it, learn it, love it. Hey, Richard, who's talking about us now? Grabbed a comment off of show 1098, the one we did with Mr. Wagner, Bill Wagner. Oh, yeah. We were talking about C Sharp 6, which still hasn't shipped at this particular moment, but is mm -hmm. absolutely on its way. And I had a nice call this morning with uh, with Bill for Humanitarian Toolbox. We do that uh, on a regular basis, sort of working towards different goals there. Yep. Uh, and... That show, of course, we were talking about new features in C-sharp and how things are evolving, just thinking about the language differently. And Simon Moore, Huger Simonson, so okay. that's Simon Simon's son, okay? Wow. Uh, says, uh, one of the best things about listening to your shows is the small nuggets of information that I normally wouldn't stumble upon if it wasn't for your all very knowing guests. Mm -hmm. This show is no exception, especially when you're talking about Bill Wagner, the man knows C-sharp backwards and forwards, holy man. Yeah, yeah. And among all the great things to come in C-sharp, Bill Wagner mentions better support for internationalization when working with string formats, which made me jump up in my chair screaming, yes, yes, yes. Yes! Did anybody in the office sort of look over at you like, what? <laughs> what is that guy smoking? <laughs> 
Uh, he goes on to say, our software is used in car workshops for both technical data about the vehicles when repairing it and financial systems for billing the customer. The software is used in multiple countries in Europe in different languages with different date formats, currencies, number formats, and measuring units. Yeah. This often creates frustration among developers, especially when someone joins the team. And any improvement in C-sharp in this area is more than welcome. Yeah, okay. Which just makes reminds me once again, I don't think we've ever done a great show on internationalization. I think you're right, Richard. If we did, it was a long, long time ago. It might have been before you. And it's super hard, right? Like yeah. that's just ha- having worked on internationalization projects, very difficult. So yes. uh, worth circling back on. That's a good conversation point. Okay. Simon, thank you so much for your comment. A dotnet rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a dotnet rocks mug, write a comment on the website at dotnet rocks.com. And that brings us to our guest, Simon Crop, works from home for a particular software, mainly on N-Service Bus. Before that, he spent the requisite years in the enterprise, where he primarily focused on building systems that operate in large and geographically distributed environments. Simon is a great supporter of the open source community and tries to contribute to it at least as much as he uses it, although this is a constant struggle. His primary open source project is Fody, F-O-D-Y, which also is a bird, but uh, it's his project. It enables a pluggable approach to manipulating .NET assemblies via changing the underlying IL. Simon also manages over 30 other open source projects and is creeping towards 500,000 NuGet downloads for projects he contributes to. Wow. Simon loves to tackle challenging problems, especially where the complexity requires a long period of contemplation. My friend, welcome to the show, and I, too, love those long periods of contemplation. I love that part of a project. We just get to sit around and think. Well, th- thank you very much, guys, and thanks for having me on the show. So, I think FODI was a better-known framework a while back. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it was last year, but it could have been before that, but I don't really remember. I don't have that info. But uh, yeah, you've had it. You've had it mentioned on a few shows of, of varying levels. Uh, yeah. So uh, it seems sort of like um, aspect oriented on steroids for some reason to me. Can you differentiate Fody from your typical AOP project? Yeah. I, when when I explain it to people, I tried to not use the word aspect oriented programming. Yeah, uh, yes, you, you you can achieve aspect oriented programming with it. Um, similar to how uh, PostSharp works. But uh, there's a fair few underlying um, features you can achieve that aren't really aspect-oriented, like changing the case sensitivity of .NET. It's hard to yeah. argue that that's an, an aspect-oriented Yeah, that's Is that even a good idea? Feature. That's pretty much right in your face. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pe- people usually uh, <laughs> scream black magic and run away when I mention that one. But um, yeah. if, you actually, if you actually look through the use cases of um, – comparing strings, the vast majority of our uses in building business applications is we want them to be case insensitive. Yeah. Um, and just to be clear, when I when I say change of case sensitivity of, of .NET, it's not actually the .NET runtime. It's only your target assembly that you're making case insensitive. So yeah. it Fody doesn't edit other people's assemblies or change the runtime behavior. It only targets your assembly. So you're you're fully aware of what's changing. And nice. you use the term weaving to weave in new instructions in, into your assemblies. 
Can you give us uh, just a simple laundry list first of some of the features that it has, and then maybe we can dive into some of them? The the features of, of 30 are pretty lean, actually. It's mostly it, – it just glues together the parts of uh, using monocecil for manipulating the actually underlying assembly. Um, it has some – basic knowledge of uh, MS, MS build pipelines so that mm-hmm. it, it seamlessly injects into your pipeline. Okay. Um, and it has the concept of uh, third-party add-ins which are pulled down through NuGet. So it, there's actually not that much code in, in the core of it. It just pulls together those three things. So you enable to, other people to write plugins for Fodi that, uh, that do all the real work. Yeah, well, I initially wrote it as allowing me to plug those things in but uh yes the side effect is anyone else can do it and but yeah, the cool. reason for doing that was mostly uh time constraints in the build pipeline because it's it's quite expensive to load up an assembly and unload an assembly and manipulate but you don't want to have to actually load it and unload it multiple times if you want to do multiple different things to the assembly mm. hence you need a framework that starts that pipeline calls for add-ins, and then finishes that pipeline for you. And there are lots of add-ins out there that people have done. How many of these have you done? And I'm looking at, I'm guessing maybe 40, 50, something like that? I think we're at 60 now. Okay. Um, I've probably I've probably created maybe 25 of those, hmm. probably had a hand in helping write probably 35. Um, wow. But it's kind of interesting that... It, when you get that kind of cold call from someone on the internet saying, oh, I wrote this without ever contacting you or asking for help or anything, can I just have this added to the list of add-ins? That's, that's kind of cool when you, you don't even need to help people do it and they can work it out all on their own. Wow. And some of these are amazingly cool, like um, some of the most useful ones that I can see. Dependency injection, automatic dependency injection for Ninject, Autofact, and Spring. Very, very cool. Yep, I actually haven't had anything to do with that one. That one's. Uh, oh, I'm just looking at the list of things that are available. I'm not sure who wrote these or or anything, but uh, uh, I, I like the automatic encryption of strings. Is an enable faking that allows faking your types without writing interfaces for testing. Um, and I really haven't even gotten past F. <laughs> <laughs> um, wow, janitor simplifies the implementation of iDisposable. That's very cool. Yeah, I, we use that one quite heavily at um, at particular. Uh, the the I dispose pattern is just non-trivial to implement if you want to make it thread safe and oh, sure properly garbage collect um, unmanaged resources and all that kind of stuff. It's um, it's kind of one of those things I I I wish either .NET or C Sharp had done a slightly better job of making it easy to implement. Um, I, I also like uh, notif- uh, the notify property changed or the property changed and property changing. Just put an attribute on your class or on your method, your property, and, and it does all that stuff for you. There's a, another one called, um, what is it? Something magic that I've been talking about on the show before. Con- it, kind, kind of magic. Kind of magic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. It does something similar. But, yes, it's yeah. it's very similar to the property changed um, weaver. It uh, it takes slightly different uh, conventions to how it works, but yes, it's doing effect- effectively the same thing. So on a whole class, you just have an attribute that says implement property changed, and you're done, pretty much. Actually, 
Property change is slightly different. It actually just detects classes that already have the interface. Okay. So it uses the interface as the marker for working out which uh, classes to to inject into. Okay. So that, that's the thing of aspect-oriented programming. Traditional aspect-oriented programming is heavily controlled by um, interfaces, but you've got full access to everything in the IL. You can inject based on type name, based on parent type, based on an interface it implements. And there's a lot of uh, features that unlocks because if you force them to implement an, an interface, you can add various um, conventions to that class that they're implementing. So you can be assured that the class you're injecting into also has certain members that, you, that you're asking them to implement and you can reuse those, those methods as part of the weaving. So it allows you to leverage a contract while also having aspect-oriented programming. Wow, cool. I like YALF, Y-A-L-F, yet another logging framework. That's pretty cool. Good stuff here, man. Very cool. When did you get the, when did you start working on this and, and what gave you the idea? Obviously, having better tools gave you the idea, but what in particular, what was, what were you working on at the time? Um, I was actually working on a, back then, I think it was a Windows form application and doing quite a lot of data binding. Mm-hmm. And just for the manual work of always remember to notify for a property and, ensuring the string was the correct name and all that kind of stuff just got a bit too much. And also how much complexity adds to your model. You're looking at a binding model. Um, it's not the, the manual work of implementing all those uh, notifications. That's the hassle. It's the fact that it makes it, it bloats out the signal to noise ratio of your model. So you can't actually tell what the true code is rather than, then what's just noise code? Right. Um, and I, there was a post done by uh, Justin Angel. Yeah, yeah. On, he was using MonoCessel at the time just as a just as a custom MS build task, I think he was doing it as, to implement some very basic notification code. Um, and I basically picked that up and ran with it and created uh, Notify Property Weaver. That was six or seven years ago. And so Notify Property Weaver went for a few gen- a few different iterations. At one point, it was just an MS build task. And then I made it a uh, Visual Studio extension, um, which had some benefits and some disadvantages. Um, and then it evolved into just a, an MS build task deployed for NuGet. NuGet made the whole thing easier and didn't need anything installed to make it work, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then when I wanted to... Uh, write a separate add-in. I think the one I was writing was uh, Virtuosity was the second one I wrote, which basically makes every single uh, cl- every single member on a class virtual, so it makes it easier to uh, unit test them, and it also makes it easier when you're using stuff like Enhibernate, which for uh, lazy loading purposes needs to create a runtime proxy, so everything needs to be virtual. Um, so I took the same approach with Notify Property Weaver and effectively copied and pasted all the the plumbing code and created the second uh, the second project to do the weaving. But the time it took to actually load an assembly, manipulate it for one of them, save it, 
loaded in the second one, manipulate for for that and save it. It was just too much um, too much time under the build. Like you want that quick F five, quick build to basically be almost seamless. Um, right. And it's at that time I went, oh, this is not going to work. If I want to do, I had like four or five other ones I wanted to create, and adding seconds to someone's uh, build pipeline is just not acceptable. Yeah, not People acceptable. Want- You're going to get in the trouble yeah, for pe- that. Yeah, people want people want milliseconds, not not seconds. Um, so, and that's when I came up with the idea of well, if I plug this in, I, I can take all of that code, reuse it, so I don't need to copy and paste it around. And also, I get huge benefits in terms of uh, memory usage, disk I/O, and also CPU by not needing to do all the heavy lifting in every single uh, extension that I want to write. And after that, it was just it, it's now. I know you come up with an idea and it might be two days to write a new add-in. Um, and a lot of them have been, I wonder if this is possible. And sometimes they're not possible because it's the information just isn't there in the IL. Um, and other times, yes, they spin into real projects. Some people use, some of them are just academic exercises, but yeah. Wow. It's, it's pretty awesome. And did you say when you were working on this? Like what time? What what year? I think it was two thousand and nine. Uh-huh. So six or seven years ago. Yeah. Wow. Well, there's just so many add-ins. This is crazy. Uh, yeah. How much does C sharp six impact this? The whole the whole Rosalind model with it, its ability to sort of modify itself. It's it's actually interesting. I've I've been reading up on the the injection points they're exposing in um, in Roslyn. Right. Uh, and there is going to be a lot of things that will be significantly easier. Um, I, I suspect doing the property notification in a before-build pipeline right. will be much simpler than doing it in a post-build pipeline. Um, compared to something like a, a module initialization, which is not actually exposed in C Sharp, so I don't think that will even be possible to do in in Roslyn. Uh, so I, I expect um, with all that coming out, I hope many of these projects will evolve into something different, so that they will be injecting into the pre-built pipeline and manipulating the the code, the in-memory model of Roslyn, rather than hooking into the post-build pipeline. Right. So, yes, a lot of those things should be easier. Should, and it's actually an easier way to go. I mean, what's hard about this? Is it just confusing code? Or is it tough to debug? It is tough to debug. Um, it, it generally, the it's both easier and harder than you expect. I mean, <laughs> if, if, you, if, you, if you go back to what you did at uh, university, you probably did some um, machine language. So, you're... Playing with stacks and you yeah, know, you don't point, have a concept. Jumping you to don't zero, have a yeah, all that good stuff, right? Yeah, how I killed so, so, my machine in one simple assembly language <laughs> instruction. Yeah, so it, it's basically back to that. So you don't have ifs, you don't have for each's, you don't have have whiles. All of those concepts don't exist, right? You just have you just have a stack. You have instructions, and you can jump to different instructions. So it's a very very um, different mindset to a. A more evolved language, mm-hmm. but having said that, it's hard to screw up because 
uh, there's a few tools you've got. Um, you've got your decompiles, obviously, so you can actually reverse engineer what you've created and it will create C Sharp for you. So you can write some IL and then refresh your decompiler and look at it and see if that is the correct code you expected. And if you do screw up, the good thing about um, manipulating IL is it will, it generally screws up in such a significant way that it's not even possible to load that assembly into the runtime. Hmm. So it, it's unlikely that you're going to inject any bugs because if you forget to do something or you stuff up in the stack or something like that, your assembly's not even going to load, um, yeah. which is actually a good thing. It's, it, a good it's kind thing. of this, it, it's kind of like the compiler mentality of if you stuff up so fundamentally, the compiler's that first fantastic unit test for you. Well, and in, in, in IL, the, the runtime is pretty strict about what's a valid and what's an invalid assembly. Um, and also at, uh, at development time, when you're playing with these things, there's a tool called PE Verify, yep. which will do a fairly good job of actually interrogating the IL you've produced and letting you know when you've got things wrong. Like, for instance, if you've got the wrong type on the stack, um, it can often tell you about those things. Or if you've if you inject something into a constructor before it's actually called itself, so you're mm. using the instance before you've actually instantiated the instance, P-Verify will tell you those things. Who's done that? <laughs> I did that uh, two days ago. Yeah, I do it all the time. <laughs> um, Why would you do that? Is stuffed up uh, Australianism? Oh, sorry. It possibly is. <laughs> it's a very polite Australianism as far as Australianisms go, I must say. Very polite. So I'm, I'm curious as to one of the add-ins that you created yourself called Visualize. I didn't actually create that one. Oh, um, it okay. may have, it's it under may have my name. Hub repo, that's all. Well, it's under the, the organization, and yes, I probably touched it last, but okay. – um, that's done by a guy called uh, Distant Cam, Cameron McFarlane. Oh, okay. Yeah, he's another Aussie. And it's to help you visualize debugging information better? How does that actually work? Yeah, so it, it takes a similar approach to how a, um, a serializer works, where it walks through a, a class. It looks at all the properties and members. Um, and if you're doing a serializer, you're writing those, you're writing that knowledge to disk. Mm-hmm. With Visualize, it actually writes that knowledge to debugger attributes. So in st- when you're actually debugging and looking at these things at runtime, the the runtime will when you hover over various properties and members, when the debugger shows you that stuff in in say Visual Studio, it will use the the class that you have written that says this is how I want this to be displayed. Mm-hmm. So for example, if you're hovering over an instance, you can roll up several properties into the summary of that instance. So you actually, if you're looking at a person and you hover over an instance of a person, you might want to show first name and last name for that person rather than needing to actually drop down into the the various sub properties of that class. Wow, that's neat. That's sort of a Almost code lensy, you know, and just yes, showing yes. you stuff about something uh, right there in the debugger. So it tries to show you a filtered view that gives you the information you need quicker. Yeah. 
Here's one that I know I'm going to be using, Method Timer. I'm going to be using that a lot. I've, how many times have I written my own method timers? Yeah. You know? Yeah, I've, I've actually I use that in quite a few projects. It, um, it saves me a lot of time as well. Sure. Well, it seems like something you could easily add in, run a bunch of testing with it, and then take it back out again. Yeah, it's um, that one you don't need to actually take out. It, it's, um, it has the concept of an interceptor where you can have a static class that will intercept every single time. And what you can do inside that, um, inside that static class is you can, for instance, put an if debug statement inside the log method for that class. And so every single method that gets timed, the information gets passed to your, your interceptor. If you're compiling release mode, then nothing will happen. Right, it's just a it's a no up, so the the JIT will basically not even inject that member in because it's empty in release mode. Right, so it's a doesn't do anything. That's in cool. Debug, so once you, you can in, put it in and decide does this deploy or not? Yes, uh, or you can have different levels. Maybe in in release you want to have quite right to disk, but maybe in debug you want to write to the debugger. Right, for example. Hmm. That's smart. So yeah, you, you never need to remove it. You just it operates differently depending on what you're doing. Yeah. So m- module time is probably one of those ones that will be much easier to do in the pre-build pipeline because injecting a try finally um, into C sharp is a lot simpler than injecting a try finally into IL. Right. Hmm. Well, doing anything in IL seems scary as heck. Well, to mere mortals. <laughs> <laughs> Such as us, yeah. It's it, it, it's it's very much like uh, paint by numbers in some ways. Huh. You, ha- you, you you write some C sharp code of what you want the output to be. Right. You compile that. You open the decompiler. You've got the IL there. You know. So now you've got a before and you've got an after list of instructions. You know the conventions you're trying to follow. Yeah. You don't need to actually know what most of those opcodes or actually do right you just need to make sure that when you have manipulated the assembly the il looks the same as the output that you expect Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so you can get quite a lot done without needing to understand deeply what uh the il spec is it's surprising how much you can get done actually (laughs) and possibly dangerous yes yeah i just thinking and you can really this is still brain surgery on yourself right if you're wrong Well, usually the uh, the interesting thing is you will make certain assumptions about what the IL produced is going to be, and then you go and move to say Windows Phone, and there's slight nuances in it's still standard IL, as in it still matches the spec. Yeah, but they've they've evolved things in various ways. So, for instance, like how how F sharp injects injects uh, events creates dramatically different IL from how C-sharp injects events. Yes, they're both events and they have that the standard uh, eventing model from an API perspective, but how they're injected into IL in those two different languages is dramatically different. And because you're writing an IL weaver for IL and not just for C-sharp, you need to basically test quite a few different uh, edge cases and vectors. Sure. Yeah. 
Here's here's one I'm going to be using as well. Null guard. <laughs> it basically checks for nulls all the parameters that you pass to a method. Yeah, we've been I've been using that on quite a few side projects to kind of gets you one step closer to F sharp from a C sharp perspective, and a lot of people mm. are going to hate me for saying that. Oh wow! <laughs> yep. Well, and it's really interesting to think about. Like it's not a there's not that much difference between VB.net and C sharp, although I'm sure people are screaming right now. I, I got to think from an IL level, they're pretty similar. But considering the way that F sharp works, that functional mentality, that IL must be very different. Yes, yes, it is very different. Um, it is interesting from a learning perspective to compile something in F sharp, and actually, if you put that through a decompiler, you can then transcode it through to C sharp. And just see the design principles that they've been taking for doing various different things under the covers. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a good learning experience for, well, a- anyone doing C-sharp should be aware of what F-sharp is doing, um, even if you don't have an opportunity to use it. I agree. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is? Uh, must be that happy time again. You know it. It's time to announce my new two, two new FODI add-ins. Megabit Internet Logging Framework and Gigabit Internet Logging Framework, <laughs> otherwise known as MILF and GILF. <laughs> that's that's not right. <laughs> oh, that's so bad. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I couldn't resist. Happens every time, man. Oh, God. I'm sorry. I, I apologize. Lord, <laughs> I, uh, I apologize. I apologize. <laughs> it's actually time to give away a music to code by... CD and DVD set. And the DVD is a documentary on the making of Music to Code By. If you don't know what this is, go to mtcb.pwop.com. This is uh, music that I developed and am still developing. 25-minute instrumental pieces that don't bore you and don't distract you, that slip into the background and help you focus. And the results are pretty amazing, actually. Let me read a couple of, um, a, a couple of comments that were delivered. Uh, this is from Patrick. Fantastic. Does what it's supposed to do. Why did I wait a month to buy this? I make six figures writing code. This easily increases my productivity. 1% at least. Worth it? Math say yes. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. You know, Um, I remember when you got uh, slash dotted and there was lots of trollish behavior about it. Yeah. But the bottom line is it's $20. People just buy it. You know, they don't care about the trolls. and, And it's one of those moments where it's like, any discussion is good discussion. Yeah, as far as productivity tools go, it's pretty cheap. But as yeah, far as an album, give it a spin. As far yeah, as an album of music goes, yeah, it's pretty expensive for that. But that's not what it is. Yeah. So put put a value on your time. If it does have any improvement on that, it's worth it very quickly. Absolutely. So again, if you want to check this out, go to mtcb.pwop.com. There's four minute samples of all six tracks now, and uh, just check it out. I'm sure you'll like it. Our buddy, who's our winner? Today's winner is Brendan Otto. Congratulations, Brendan. Yeah. I'll clap for you, sir. Brendan, we'll send you an email. We already have and uh, respond to that, and we'll get that right out to you. And if you don't know what we're talking about here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .net Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree 
to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club, but you got to sign up to win. And Simon, we like to ask our guests on every show, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, what would you buy? Well, there is a rumor that the new Mac Pro trash can desktop PC is going to be refreshed soon with a new version. Ooh. And I would probably get one of those. And that would be almost a base model would probably yeah, shoot through five grand. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> so you've got a quarter of a good one. <laughs> yes, yes. I believe specking a full one of those out gets up to the price of a, a medium car. Yeah, yeah it's like 15, 20, 15 grand easy. 15 to 20 grand, yes. yeah. yeah. And it looks like a trash can. Uh, yeah, uh, but the, they run silent, they run cool, they run powerful. It's it's a beautiful piece of machinery. How many processors can you throw in that thing? All of them. 16, I think. Something like that. Uh, I'm not sure of a number, but they are server grade as well. So yeah. it's this is this is not your standard desktop CPU, so nope. it's it's definitely a nice piece of kit. This this is not your daddy's PC. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, no. Starting, starting. <laughs> the six core dual GPU is five grand, and you haven't added yeah. a thing to it yet. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, here we go. We can go to twelve cores, no problem. There's another five grand. Ah, yeah. sixty four gigs of RAM. Yeah, no problem. That's another fifteen hundred bucks. Because every, every, every developer of storage, sure, that's a grand. Every developer needs dual graphics cards, right? Well, it, only, it all comes with dual graphic cards. The question is three gigs or six gigs. That's another grand. <laughs> yeah, it is It is crazy expensive. Uh, and the 27-inch display will not do. We need the 4K display, the 32-inch. That's another four grand. So wow. this is going well. Oh, here are all the cables. They're easily a thousand bucks each. They are Apple cables after all. <laughs> uh, there you go. Fifteen thousand bucks. Hit you, it. You spec'd it out. I spec'd it out. <laughs> yes. And that's why I don't own one. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. Twelve cores. Thirty megs worth of L three cache. Sixty four gigs of RAM. Terabyte of PCIe based store storage. So fl- super fast flash drive. And dual six gig video cards and a four K monitor. Yeah, that'll that'll render your video. There you go. Or a car. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to know what the experience of writing an add-in for Fody feels like. What? How? How have you done that for us? Um. Well, starting with the idea, it's generally doing a fair bit of research first to see if it is actually even possible. And it's usually checking if the, if the metadata that you're expecting to base your logic on even exists after the compiler has gone through its process. Okay. Um, so one, one thing that isn't possible is um, uh, string interpolation. Oh. It'd be nice to basically have uh, – named variables in your string and use the currently local var- local scoped variables to push that into the string. So string formats become much simpler. Um, and yeah, there's some stuff around C Sharp 6 that is happening there. But inside de- standard IL, because the, if you're not using a variable, the, it basically gets optimized out. So if you kind of locally scope a variable to try and interpolate that into a string, then the variable won't actually exist mm-hmm. in the IL. 
So once you've ensured that you actually have all that metadata, uh, generally it's a case of spiking up before and after projects. So you create two class libraries. You In one, you put all your uh, before code in, which is enough code to base your assumptions on. So if you're looking at property changed, it would just be a class with the I notified property changed interface, but none of the properties actually have that code injected. Uh-huh. Then you write the exact same class in a different assembly that has that code uh, placed in there. So it will have the same class, and inside every one of the properties, it will be calling the notify property changed event. And okay. then you get them up side by side in two different decompilers so that you can actually see the IL of both of those side by side. Then you spin up basically some uh, unit tests that are that are calling out to MonoCessel and you load up the before assembly, you manipulate the IL and you save it. And then you refresh your decompiler. And you can actually see your changes and how close you are to the expected output. So that kind of gives you a very quick um, interaction to iterate on so you can see what's changing and how close you are to your expected output. So long story short, if you're not familiar with IL, you shouldn't even be messing around with this. (laughs) You really got to be familiar with IL, sounds like. I'm not sure how true that is. I know... uh, you can get a lot done in in ignorance. Um, Just with pattern matching and that kind of uh, talent? Well, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a strong typed model yeah. in using MonoCessel. So it, anyone who's, who's familiar with how reflection works, right? I guess reflection can be extended an advanced topic, but most of .NET developers have done some reflection and know how it works. So when yeah. you're doing a reflection, you, you load your assembly into an in-memory model you walk through the the various types to get the type you're interested in. You walk through the various members to get the properties and the and the methods, and you you interrogate based on attributes and everything else. Okay, so map that across to how um, IO works and how MonoCessor works. Okay, it's it's exactly the same, except you get one level deeper in in reflection. You can't actually go into the model of what's inside. A method or a property mm. in in MonoCessel, you can go one level deeper and you can actually look at the individual instructions. So that kind of programming model is very similar to anyone who uses reflection. And then the extra trick is inside reflection, it's a read-only model. Inside MonoCessel, it's a changeable model. Uh-huh. So it's it's not that different yeah, in, okay. in how you, how you actually write that code. Uh, that you don't need to have that much experience in IL to get started, if that makes sense. Yeah, okay, I get it. So you need to be able to see what's changed, right? Yes. And you can actually, like, once you kind of get that uh, interaction going of you're changing your target model and you can see it it changing in the decompiler. Um, And I should note that both decompilers, you can switch between C-sharp and IL views. Right, right. Okay, so as you're injecting stuff, as long as it's a valid IL, you can actually see what C-sharp results. Oh, wow. So it's bidirectional too. 
Yes, well, if you're looking at something, over decompilers do this. You have you can look at it, have an IL view, or they actually have built-in decompilers which will reverse engineer the IL back to C sharp. And what tool are you using for this? Um, I use IL Spy is for the tool, right? The one I use because that there that's the free one now, right? Because Redgate started charging for Reflector. Yes, yes, I did use Reflector quite heavily until they started charging for it, and it. It basically killed the ecosystem around it. There was quite a few people writing add-ins for Reflector to do various interesting things, and it seems to have stagnated now, and also you've got to pay for it. So IL Spies for one I, I use. Yeah, I don't know if that was ever the one of the best moves that that uh, Red, Redgate ever made. You know, they make a lot of great stuff, but, you know, it's too bad. Anyway, I mean, IL Spy is a good tool and a maintained one, right? Like, they, the guys have been putting work into it. They they put out a, an update only back in March, so. Yeah, no, it's a, it's, a, it's a very good tool, and it's it's fast, and it does a good job at decompiling. Um, it's even fairly forgiving with when I write uh, some pretty bad IL. <laughs> <laughs> so, when we started this conversation, I was talking about um, aspect-oriented programming, you know, the difference between this and, say, post sharp and you there's actually an add in here that allows you to do you know your traditional aspect oriented programming mr advice or is it mr advice it looks like i think mr. it's mr advice yes yeah. that, that's a fairly recent one but yeah there's that one there's also uh, uh one called method decorator yeah um, there's a few which are more traditional um aspect oriented models yeah yeah, that's pretty cool. It, you know, what you've got here is you've, you've opened up, um, a plumbing gateway, if you will. <laughs> it's kind of interesting how uh, it's hard to, you know, and, and I appreciate the word weaving, right? Because it's similar to pre-compiling and stuff, but, but it's different. And naming is just incredibly hard when you have these concepts that are similar, but different to things that we already know. And you have to come up well, with new words. Yeah, the other interesting thing is you're you're probably using very similar code already, even if you're not using MonoCessel. If if you look at how um, runtime proxies work, so um, the the Castle project has mm-hmm. a runtime proxy to it's used for doing like Hibernate proxies. Um, also, how the XML serializer works at runtime in .NET. Those those tools are all doing basically convention-based generation of .NET code at runtime. Yeah. So even though you're not using an IL weaver, chances are you have in the past, I mean, most people have used XML Serializer, using something that does very similar things in your code. So it's not necessarily something to be scared of. You're probably already using it. You just don't know it. I mean, that's the the best tools, right? They, They work to an extent that you don't even know they're working. <laughs> yeah. Here's another good one, Commander. And so this injects iCommand properties and implementations for use in MVVM applications. Very nice. There's quite a few MVVM, MVVM tools here, you know, with a property change and in property changing and Commander. Are there any yeah. others that fall into that suite of category? Um, there's a reactive UI uh, plugin oh, cool. because... Uh, Reactive UI t- takes a fairly different approach to how it does property notifications. It's, it follows the, the async model. So wow. it's not really compatible with your standard property notification. Um, 
I also use the um, filter weaver, which means you don't even need to have gets and sets on your on your models. You can basically just have a public string property oh, wow. name. So and you can, don't need to get and set, and you can still data bind to that. So fielder converts public fields to public properties. And then I guess you use that in conjunction with uh, property changed. Yeah, so that, that one's designed specifically for when you're building um, data binding applications because you, you never want to be writing a library that you expose to someone and have confusion about what's a field and what's a property. Yeah. But from a data binding perspective, when you're writing an internal model that is only used by you, there's no encapsulation concerns there. So there's mm -hmm. no confusion over over fields and properties. You can just data bind to fields in that case. You've got things that interact with uh, F-sharp in particular, with Nancy, with Stiletto, uh, with Spring, with Romantic Web. A lot of extensibility things here to work with other other uh, tools. Yeah, the, the, the add-ins are to various levels of maturity and different ages. So it, it's interesting to go and have a look and see what's happening in the various projects and see if you could possibly use them or contribute to them. What's the what's your go-to? What's the one you use all the time? <laughs> For almost all my all my side projects where I don't have to worry about people screaming black magic, I <laughs> I use the case case insensitive oh, weaver. Nice. Um <laughs> what yeah, magic look, is this? Caseless. Well, it's actually it it, it changes the default, right? So if you don't specify case sensitivity when you're doing a string comparison, so right. you're doing equals equals or you're doing a string compare, etc., it will change the case sensitivity for those ones. But you can still always fall back to the case sensitive version. So yeah. out of the box, uh, .NET is um, case sensitive and then falling back to case insensitive if you want to. So this changes that approach to be case insensitive by default, falling back to case sensitive if you want to. So it returns and string dot equals, you know, string one comma string two, and then string comparison dot ordinal ignore case. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Um, and if you look for your uses of where you compare strings, it's very rare that you actually want to do a a case sensitive comparison. Um, I, I think .NET went the right way. They want to be unambiguous about when they compare strings. And from a technical perspective, two two strings of different case should not really be considered equal from a programming language perspective. But from writing business code and actual real-world code, the, we generally want the opposite to be true. Like if you compare two file paths to each other, well, in, in Windows anyway, mm. generally you don't want them to be considered... Um, Case sensitive. Yeah. This seems very debugging resistant. So you're you're generally you're you you're doing this pre compile or post compile or a little bit of both. It is post compile, but you do actually have access to manipulate the PDB as well. Right. So you you can actually change line numbers of where things point to. Um, there's some hacks I've seen people experiment with where. Um, you can actually write a temporary file somewhere, like a temporary C-sharp file, and then have the debugger, the PDB lines, point to that temporary file. 
So you can actually still debug for a generated code. Generally, the, the how the injection works though is you're changing one you're changing one method and substituting it for another method, right? Um, or you're changing a field to a property. The you're not injecting huge swathes of of code, so there's yeah. very little need to actually debug any of these things. There is another approach that you can do of um, let's say you're injecting a as part of doing a weave, you need to inject, say, a class with 100 lines of code. And someone might need to debug that for various reasons. Maybe you've got a bug and you want you want them to be able to step through that code, but it's injected, so how do you do that? Mm -hmm. You can do the approach of writing, writing a copy of that code to disk and copying the lines over. Another approach is to have a fallback option where if you detect the class name in that assembly by convention, you will instead use the class that that person has placed in that assembly rather than injecting your own custom class. All right. right. Yeah. Which means they can just copy the, the default implementation from your documentation or online into their temporarily into their project. And it means they can step through it as if they had written it. They can manipulate that how they want to, perhaps fix the bug. And maybe even contribute the, the changes to that class back to you as a, as a temporary debugging experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just that there's a few extra hoops you have to jump through here, but you can get that debugging experience. That's great. And I think it's really important because it's been a complaint. It's been an excuse to not look at this for a long time. Well, an excuse really for AOP to not look at AOP, yeah. right? Yeah. The... Um, the extensions that I do, if there is large portions of of code that I'm expecting to exist, that'll be convention based detected code anyway. So, right. so for instance, the the method time you mentioned. So there's a there's a static class that every every timing method that's called will be redirected to that static class. Well, the person who's writing the assembly owns that class, owns the implementation. So all I'm doing is uh, redirecting in a finally the current state of how long it took and the name of the method and passing that to your code. So you can still debug your code with no issues. Yeah. So yeah, there's not that many people who try these things and come back with the complaint of this is hard to debug or it breaks my debugging experience. It's it's usually the the edge cases of I'm doing this crazy thing with umpteen base classes and I've, I'm overloading or overriding multiple methods in the child class. I'm doing explicit implementations and it just, this doesn't work in this scenario. And in that case, you just add a new unit test for that scenario, make sure the IL copes with that scenario and push a new version. So the debugging experience hasn't been much of a complaint of people that I've interacted with. What about testing? Is is there are there add-ins that either help with testing or um, address issues with testing using Fodi? So, in terms of writing Fodi add-ins, or in terms of using Fodi? Uh, using Fodi. Okay, so out of out of a box, there's a there's a setting you can enable which says uh, enable assembly verification. And what that does is after it's actually done its um, 
post-compilation step, it will pass the assembly into PE Verify and actually run it through a verification. Hmm. Um, that's not on by default because it does, depending on the size of your assembly, it can be a non-trivial amount of time to actually do that verification. Yeah. But if you ever have any kind of problems or you suspect anything, you can just toggle that switch and do a, do a rebuild. And PE Verify does a very good job of detecting that something has gone wrong. And it does a fairly good job of telling you what has gone wrong. Nice. Okay. So, sometimes the errors are fairly um, cryptic because you're thinking in kind of the, the C sharp .NET land and it's it's effectively dealing with machine code. So it can't necessarily always give you sensible errors. But mm. that's, a, that's a good way of uh, just adding that double check in. Um, also, it's it's fairly easy to, depending on the add-in you're putting in, to write one verification test for the add-in you're using. So if you're using caseless, well, let's say I don't particularly trust it. Well, it's easy for you to write a trivial test that compares two strings in the, the assembly that you're targeting and just ensure the output looks okay. Mm. Um, if you're using property changed, just write a basic test that actually verifies an event has been fired for a property that's been injected. So it's it's fairly trivial to just do those smoke tests and ensure that it's working for your unique scenario. Um, okay. And, and as, I, as I said, it if something goes wrong, it generally goes wrong in a way that uh, you won't you'll lie. know about it pretty quickly. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's, and it, but it, it's not also a hard hang of windows or anything either. This does fail relatively elegantly. Yeah, so you get nice build errors. You get um, like you get a if it's an unknown, if it's unexpected error, you'll actually get a stack trace into the weaver where it actually happened, and you'll get the error back from um, Mono Cecil with something sensible in there. I bet I do love the term um, unexpected error because I only have expected errors yeah. in my life. Right, <laughs> unexpected well, it, exception. <laughs> I, I make the distinction because. Um, if you're doing like for certain unsupported scenarios for certain weavers, like it's just some things it might just be too hard to do in in some of the state machines. Like if you look for IO produced by async or yield. Um, you're not qualified. <laughs> yeah, you kind of and, and the doco's pretty light on in terms of how that state machine is produced and and what the state machine will look like for various different scenarios. So in some of those scenarios, if you're writing a weaver and maybe you just say, look, if, if, someone's tr if someone puts an attribute on an async method and tells me to inject into that, I'm just going to throw an error and say, look, not currently supported. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sorry, voodoo not possible here. Yeah. Yes. And, and that, that's what I mean by an expected error. Yeah. So in, in that case, you don't give them a stack trace. You don't give them the full error message or that context. So um, yeah, it's just a way of saying no. One more thing yeah. before we before we uh, call it a show, and that's the basic Fodi add-in project. Talk about that. So it's a it's a template project that I that I created, which just does the minimal amount of each step needed to write an add-in. So um, it references the appropriate things. It does some logging. It does some very basic um, injection into into the target assembly, so that if you do want to spike out and get started on on an add-in you can effectively copy and paste yeah a great place to start yeah so it, it basically gets you started with uh, the 
some testing and some basic injection and the appropriate references and basically the patterns you need to get started with riding a weaver. Awesome. Um, a lot of other people will, if they want to go and um, create one, they'll look for something else that's similar. I mean, there's 60 um, add-ins that currently exist. So yeah. if you're looking at doing some logging injection, you'd look at um, the previous one you mentioned or maybe um, Anatar to inject some logging or maybe method timer and basically just manipulate those into something that you want it to do. And of course, it's all new gettable and uh, you should go check it out right now at github.com slash Fody slash Fody slash Fody slash Fody. Fody, Fody. <laughs> Simon, thank you. What a great project thank and uh, thanks for clearing all this stuff up for us. Yeah, thank you very much, and thank you for all the years of uh, podcasts. Oh, you bet. And don't ever stop listening, or Richard and I will have to get real jobs. <laughs> don't do that. All right. <laughs> we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a